0: My sense is just talking to people, like politically inclined people, maybe local office holders elsewhere outside of Washington, New York. Most people don't really know who Hunter Biden is. They know he's not great, but it's not something that has really broken through.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, June 30th. Today, I'm joined by our Capitol Hill insider, Abby Livingston, to talk about the House investigations into Hunter Biden. Republicans have subpoena power, and they're uncovering all sorts of sinister bits and pieces about Hunter's business dealings, with the ultimate goal of making his father, President Joe Biden, look corrupt heading into 2024. But does anything about this story resonate with normal voters? Or is the Hunter scandal mostly just chum for the right-wing media? Abby and I discuss. And later, Lawrence Sherman talks to Ben Landy about a fashion world investor mystery. Do the Olsons need more outside capital to save the row? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. We are coasting into a long Fourth of July weekend. Hopefully, hopefully a bunch of you have four days off. Earlier this week, I read something for Puck about Hunter Biden, how the scandal slash non-scandal will play out in 2024. And I'm joined today by someone who knows the House of Representatives, where these investigations into Hunter Biden are being conducted better than most. And that's Abby Livingston, Puck's newest contributor. How are you, Abby?
0: I'm great, Peter. It's it's fun to talk about my favorite topic, the House of Representatives.
1: Before, actually, you're lying to me right now um, on <laughs> air, bit. because as we head into Fourth of July weekend, I want the world to know that you like Bruce Springsteen more than the House of Representatives. And we'll be listening, I assume, to Bruce a lot this weekend as you celebrate slash protest America.
0: Uh, yeah, I think everyone loves Bruce Springsteen <laughs> more than the House of Representatives, including the House of Representatives.
1: <laughs> Fair. So, Abby, so I was writing this piece last week about the investigations into Hunter Biden and whether he improperly profited off his connections to his dad with foreign businessmen. The DOJ also wrapped up an investigation into Hunter about a week ago, and and he pled guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and a, a gun charge. House Republicans were not happy with that. They're vowing to push ahead to prove that there's this Biden crime family and that after Joe Biden left the vice presidency back in 2017, he immediately started grifting with his son, going through all of the innuendo, anonymous leaks, whistleblowers, evidence. This is being thrown out there by House Republicans, by everyone from Charlie Kirk to Clay Travis on Twitter are House Republicans just convinced that Hunter and Joe Biden are both guilty and that the deep state is protecting both of them? Is that is that Are they just true believers on this topic?
0: I don't want to get too much into other people's heads and thinking, but there is an excitement around this that is not just the far right wing. It is the normies in the House who want to do this. It does, though, feel like, and I've had sources unsolicited bring up these comparisons that I, one of them I came up with on my own, Benghazi and Vince Foster. The The idea that they did this huge investigation into Hillary Clinton on, well, both of them, I guess, but Benghazi and there really wasn't a there there. I'm sure there are people who take issue with that, but it never really broke through. But the problem with that was that is the investigation that led us to realizing Hillary Clinton had the email server. And so there are things you find in these investigations that may not be the link of Joe Biden to this. And I thought one of the smartest points in your piece was Biden has a reputation of being clean. And I think that's what they're looking for. That's the holy grail. But it hasn't come up yet. My sense is just talking to people like politically inclined people, maybe local office holders elsewhere outside of Washington, New York. Most people don't really know who Hunter Biden is. They know he's not great, but it's not something that has really broken through. I think Mm -hmm. the question is, do they make TV ads about this? And my sense is probably not, but There is so much enthusiasm for this investigation that it's almost like some of the other investigations we've seen with the Republicans. They get so caught up in their ecosystem that they're so convinced there's something there and it doesn't necessarily break through to the general public.
1: Yeah, there was a Reuters poll about a week ago that basically said it wasn't breaking through to the public. And if it was, most voters, including most independents, think that Hunter's problems are his own problems and not connected to Joe Biden. But I mean this what you're saying to me right now is where I was getting a little twisted up like back in 2020 when Biden was running, he for all of his gaffes and his verbal flubs and his temper is able to sort of bundle criticisms about Hunter into the storyline of how difficult it is to be the father of someone who's dealing with addiction. And, and yet a Republican texted me the other day after after reading my piece and said the anti-Biden intensity right now among Republicans feels like it's burning much hotter than it did in 2020. I mean, I know they've been spending two or three years just lashing Biden on the right, but that did jump out at me. Maybe Republicans view him a little differently this time around.
0: I mean, instinctively, I sense that. But what I can say, I talked to a Republican pollster today about this. And his point was, this is not In the mainstream, he doesn't anticipate TV ads with this unless there's a link to the president, Mm -hmm. but it adds a layer. And this is the Republican characterization, not mine, that this adds a layer of problems for Biden's image of competence. And this is just one more problem he has. I'm going to just turn it a little bit. What I find more interesting in all of this is the Democrats, and the New York Times had a piece today. I've written a little bit about it. As soon as the plea deal was struck a few days later, Hunter Biden is attending the state dinner that the president held. And because their name is Biden on the press release, they're at the top of the alphabet when they release the guests of the state dinner. And it's the first name everyone saw. And it was sort mm-hmm. of this jaw-dropping moment. And a very prominent former Senate aide named Jim Manley tweeted, unbelievable, with photos of Biden, Hunter Biden at the, the dinner. What I would just say is Joe Biden, more than any president since I've covered politics, has been better at the Hill than anyone. I think there's an argument to be made that Obama cost a trade deal because he just completely ignored and dismissed members of Congress. That's not Joe Biden. Joe Biden remembers everyone's birthday. He remembers former members birthdays. He is on top of everything and this is the first time I've heard Democrats really complain about Joe Biden. They don't like having to go out and defend this stuff. I don't think they see it as existential. It's just not why they came to Congress.
1: That's so interesting. Another thing that jumped out at me was, and you mentioned this briefly, when Republicans were running against Hillary Clinton in 2016, she had baked in questions about her honesty, integrity, trust, whatever, going back years. I mean, I covered her in 2007 and 2008 when she was caught fibbing about a variety of things. Joe Biden has basically cleared up the plagiarism scandal that that ended his 1988 campaign and, and really doesn't have those issues. And so it's like, why are you going after Biden on issues of trust and integrity? Like, maybe you should be focusing more on the thing that comes up the most in focus groups, which is his age, or maybe focus on the number one issue for voters, which is inflation. And it got me thinking like, well, there are two different kinds of thinking about negative campaigning. And one is with Hillary in 2016 or what Obama did to Romney in 2012, find storylines that reinforce pre-existing doubts about your opponent, right? Every single story about Romney was he's an out-of-touch rich guy. The other mode of thinking is kind of the Swift boat thing against John Kerry. And it should be noted that Chris Lasavita, who did Swift Boats, is now Trump's senior advisor. Go after your opponent's biggest strength. And so maybe that's kind of a little bit of what's going on here. Whereas like the number one thing. People think about Joe Biden, whether you think he's capable, whatever you think is a decent human being. So maybe part of the thinking here is you start to like chip away at that. And then, you know, what is Biden left with? I don't know. Again, you can't go in the minds of like what Republicans are thinking about this. But the other thing I want to mention, too, is it also depends who Biden ends up running against as the Republican nominee. Uh, If it's Trump, this whole like drain the swamp corruption thing is a little neutralized because Jared and Ivanka and Trump didn't drain the swamp, et cetera. If it's another Republican like Ron DeSantis, the Hunter Biden story does give the Republican an advantage while running against an incumbent. You know, whether there's a smoking gun or not, it allows them to paint themselves as a fresh faced outsider. And this is sort of like old politics as usual.
0: My gut on this is this is an echo chamber and a part of the Republican world. And this is just talked about so endlessly that it is just part, it is marinated into daily thinking, daily reading, daily listening, and that this is a central, I'm not sure how much strategy is long-term chess playing, jujitsu, or if this is just something the right wing has latched onto in ways that sort of, for people who don't live in that world, get blindsided like me. I just... I knew Hillary Clinton was not popular in 2016 during of a large segment of the population. I just didn't know how deep it ran and how. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's something that just gets marinated. And so this is they've got the subpoena power. They've been wanting to do this since Joe Biden became president. And now they're going to. I think that's reflected on the impeachment movement that we're seeing on several fronts with Biden and cabinet members. It is we have the power and this is what we came to do with it here.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I was—I'm just gaming out hypotheticals with you about how this might play. I think you're exactly right that this is mostly, for right now, a very online conservative thing. Like, again, Charlie Kirk tweeted the other day after the WhatsApp message came out that I think emerged from the House. This is this again. I'm a reporter covering politics, and I get confused. Either the uh, Ways and Means Committee or the Oversight Committee, What's that message from Hunter Biden talking to a Chinese businessman threatening that my dad's sitting next to me unless I get payment right now, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. And then like Charlie Kirk did this whole like tweet and it was like, connect the dots. And it was like all of these different things that like I have a master's degree and it was hard for me to follow. (laughs) Like the dots, my friends, are actually not that clearly connected for the average low information voter out there. But- I can see why they're just trying to throw stuff in the water to muddy the waters around Biden. But it does feel like a sort of Murdoch media ecosystem thing without a smoking gun at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, I remember probably around 2010, I went to see a CPAC panel and I had no idea what they were talking about. They were talking about the <laughs> Tides Foundation and all these things. And I just sat there and I felt very I felt like a bad reporter. And that's just basically that was 13 years ago. And that's what reporting is now is there's all these different niche topics that you've got to suddenly master. And so I kind of put it in there. It could break through. It depends, you know, if they find anything with Biden, if they find any malfeasance in the DOJ. But I just generally think America is just exhausted right now and just wants lower bills and cheap gas and being able to get through their day.
1: I think that's right. And it should be noted, and I led with this, last week should have been a better news cycle for Biden, but it was complicated by the Hunter stuff. Inflation is going down and has been going down. Biden spoke up about this during his big economy speech earlier this week, but I do think that's what Americans care about. The price of eggs. Abby, uh, enjoy Bruce this weekend. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter.
1: When we come back, a hard pivot. Lauren Sherman is here to talk about the Olsen twins.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy talking to Lauren Sherman. Hey there, Lauren.
3: Hey, Ben. Good to see you.
2: Nice to see you too. Okay. So I wanted to have you on to talk about a story that is uh, still kind of amazing to me as somebody who grew up in the early nineties with full house. And that is what is going on with Mary Kate and Ashley Olson and their fashion company, The Row. I guess I kind of knew that they'd become these mini moguls and the 2000s or the 2010s, but I didn't realize that they had at one point passed this $100 million revenue threshold and just how big this brand had become. You reported last week that The Row is sort of low on capital. They've they've been maybe stuck in a rut since COVID. What's going on over there in terms of the business?
3: So The Row is a a very high-end fashion brand. I'd say it's one of the only American luxury brands, meaning that the quality of The product they produce can kind of sit against the European luxury houses and live up to the hype. And their products are very expensive. But when you are producing at that level and you are not a part of a big conglomerate where you have all the, as they call them, back-end synergies or, or just the benefits of being... At that scale, the margins are harder to achieve. So if you're going to use a really expensive lining for a coat, or if you're going to use the best factory to make handbags in Italy, you're not going to get the same prices that a Louis Vuitton gets because you're not making as much product. So yes, the row at some point in the late 2010s had surpassed $100 million a year in sales, whether or not they're at that point now, post-COVID, I'm not sure. But they had gotten to what in fashion we'd call mid or smaller mid-sized brand now. But the big thing is that they're doing fine. They're not gonna go out of business anytime soon, but if they wanna keep going... You know, you have to make money to spend money and they're going to have to add some capital. They've had previous investors in the past and now they're looking for new ones.
2: Yeah, this is a piece of a conundrum that you've talked about before where there's the sort of economic valley that brands fall into where they they can scale to a certain size. But then it does take a lot more capital to make the leap to being a truly global company, to having those synergies you talked about, to getting from, say, $100 million in sales to a billion dollars, which is the end game if maybe you want to get acquired by an LVMH or a caring, for example. And so you really do need outside investors, outside capital, maybe private equity to come in to help bridge that gap, especially if your goal is to expand into new markets, like apparently the row wants to get into Asia. I, I assume they-, they need outside money to make that happen.
3: Yeah, they definitely have some distribution in Asia, but that is such a huge growth opportunity. It's where LVMH and and the big conglomerates, that's where the majority of their revenue is coming from China and and other big countries in Asia. And so if you want to really scale up there, you need support, you need partners. And from my understanding, their previous partner, Byron Trott, who's a very famous investor, he's good buddies with Warren Buffett. And has invested in other fashion brands, including Tory Burch, did not want to put more money into the business and nor did they want him to put more money into the business. He usually invests in things that are really big scale and the row, even if they are at 100 million, the goal would be to get to 500 million in the next five to 10 years, not to get to, you know, five billion dollars. That's 20, 30, 40 years down the line, even if that can ever happen. So yes, they need to they're not going to spend all their money. I think the the thing about the row is that it's run by Ashley, and Mary Kate Olson, who are very famous as we mentioned from being childhood stars on full house and having all those direct to video movies and all that stuff. And they made a ton of money off of that. They've made money off of lower end fashion lines at stores like Walmart and Kohl's. But they're not going to put all their own money into it. So the goal definitely is to raise and, And I think, you know, I remember talking to them. They don't do a lot of interviews, but I've interviewed them a few times. And I remember talking to them a a few years ago about they really took time to grow the row slowly and carefully. But at some point, if you want to play in this business, you just you have to get to a certain size. And it's just the realities of fashion right now.
2: Do you have a sense that the Olsons maybe want to take money off the table with a new fundraising round? Or, or is this all about just growing and, and supersizing this company, getting to that global scale where they can really compete with the big European brands?
3: From the investors and the people on the market that I've talked to, I haven't heard that specifically. One thing about them... It's not surprising. They're extremely private. They certainly don't want anyone writing about any of their investments. And so even with their close circle of friends, it's not something they're not. They don't share a lot of this information. So I'm not sure if they want to take money off the table or not. I would say that they probably have less motivation to do that because they are privately wealthy than other designers would be. So a lot of designers are, you know, startup entrepreneurs, they want to get money off the table because they want to live the lifestyle that they are promoting in their social media or whatever. The Olsons don't need to do that. they they don't have social media. and if they do, it's very it's not it's not open to me. <laughs> and they also, they don't need the money. They can fund their own lifestyle through all the hard work they did.
2: You wrote the other day that the thing that the row does exceptionally well is they take other designs, things like the, the Tiva sandal, and they basically remake that, but with much higher quality materials and they sell it for, say, 900 or or $1,000. Is that a business model that you can sort of see scaling and really getting to that next level? Because obviously the row is sort of an embodiment of, of you know what we refer to as quiet luxury. I know you, you don't like that term, but it doesn't have logos. It's not like a very ostentatious brand. And so I wonder if there are potential obstacles for them in, in getting to the size of some of their competitors when it really is about this sort of understated elegance that doesn't shout in your face that this is a, a $10,000 piece.
3: Well, fashion is cyclical and right now, logos are out and there are all the brands are sort of moving away from that and looking at more classic pieces hermes doesn't have heavy logo product and and they never will and they're you know an over 10 billion dollar a year brand so i think it's less about that what they have done and they're good merchandisers as you said they take these sort of simple products and make them the best version And they just do something where it's such a subtle thing, but they are able to refine the product to a point where nothing compares. And that is definitely a skill and a desirable thing because the thing you have to remember is most people want fashion that is easy to wear and easy to interpret and to understand. And so by pulling out these classic pieces like the LLB and boat tote, or even they do a version of this Prada sport clog from the nineties. And you can get the Prada one on Poshmark or the Real Real or whatever for cheaper, but there's just something about the way that they refined it that makes it feel like, oh, it's worth the money cause I'll wear this forever. And it just looks exactly right. And that's a real skill. And they've proven, they've gone through, you know, obviously most of these brands have number two designers who are really, really good, especially looking at them as quote unquote celebrities. You'd think of them as being people who need designers to back them up that they maybe not be able to do it themselves. But to be honest, they've been doing the fashion stuff as long as they were actors and actually longer. And they are the ones driving this. They've always had talented people behind them, but they are the ones driving this aesthetic. So, to me, if you're a strategic group and you're looking at brands, they are a brand to watch because they've convinced the consumer that their products are worth the cost. Whether or not they actually are, that's a whole other question.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, an incredible business, lots of growth opportunity here. I personally love a logo list, black tea like I'm wearing right now. So I get it. And if you're a potential investor out there listening, the Olsens are apparently looking for money, so so hit them up. You can get in touch with Lauren and she'll connect to you.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure they would love that. And also, if you have already started drawing up the papers, please call me. I'd love to know more. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lauren, thanks so much. Always appreciate having you.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.